0: If you're newer visiting, visiting, uh, we, we do worship songs to start, and then we enter a time of reading and learning uh, from God's Word, the Bible. And this week is a great week to be here because we're starting a new series, and it'll be uh, a month long, four weeks, and we'll be in the book of Isaiah. And if you do not have a Bible, there's a Bible uh, in the pew around you. It's on page 602. This morning we'll be in Isaiah chapter 42. Alright, once you're there, go ahead and stand up. And we're going to read Isaiah 42 verses 1 through 9. And then we'll pray and then we'll sit back down. Alright, Isaiah chapter 42 starting in verse 1. Behold... those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this song that was written 700 years before Jesus was born, speaking of what he would come and what he would do and who he would be. Help us to listen this morning. I pray that your spirit would speak to our hearts. Help us to understand a little bit more of Jesus this morning through the words of Isaiah. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. All right, go ahead and have a seat. So, after Jesus rose from the dead, he appeared to two of his disciples that were commuting to a town just outside of Jerusalem called Emmaus. And at first, these two disciples, you know, Jesus is walking with them. They they didn't know it was Jesus. They had no idea that it was their Lord walking with them, risen from the dead. But right before Their eyes were open, and they realized who Jesus was, sitting right there in front of them, eating with them after he had died. Before they realized that, he said this. He said, Oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe that all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter his glory? And then it says, Beginning with Moses... And all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And so Jesus turned to the only Bible that they had at the time, and he pointed out in every section the law of Moses, the Psalms, the prophets, everything that pointed to him. And so in all of the Old Testament, You know, you won't find many passages that speak of Jesus in more detail and more beauty than these four servant songs of Isaiah. These songs were written by the prophet Isaiah over 700 years before Jesus was born on the earth. And it was during a rough time for Israel. You know, they were facing extraordinary enemies. The kingdom of ancient Assyria, as well as the future and coming up kingdom of Babylon, under which they would eventually go into exile away from the promised land. And so Isaiah spoke in this time, and he spoke a message both of judgment as well as hope. And not just for Israel, Isaiah spoke of judgment for the nations as well as hope. For the nations. And so Isaiah, in speaking to the people of Israel, he called them to be faithful to the covenant that they had already made with God, back in the books of Genesis through Deuteronomy. To to do righteousness, to do justice according to the character of the God that they worshiped. That's what his message was, but they were not doing it. And Isaiah had some choice words for them. They were worshiping false gods and neglecting justice in their community. And so throughout the book, it's interesting because there's multiple usages of the term servant. And Isaiah calls the people of Israel God's servant multiple times throughout the book. But they didn't measure up to their calling as God's servant. So way back in in Genesis 12, the first Israelite, Abraham, the first Hebrew, God appeared to him and he made a promise to him. He says, Go from your country and from your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you and I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse And it says, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And so, Israel, through the line of Abraham, was called to be God's chosen people to bring God's blessing to the nations, to be a vessel that displayed God's goodness and blessing to the world. But instead, they assimilated themselves with the nations. They worshipped the same gods as the nations and served them instead of the God of Abraham. And so here we are in a time of great upheaval, 1,500 years after Abraham. And in verse 9, we learn that in light of Israel's failure to live up to her calling, God planned something new. Right there in verse 9, it says, Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. We are introduced to it in this first of four servant songs. And so here we meet a new servant. It says, Behold my servant. It's it, uh, Isaiah has used the term servant throughout the book, but this is something new. This is a different servant. This is Not a failed servant, but the ideal servant who will carry out God's mission on earth perfectly, completely. And so in these four songs that go from Isaiah 42 through Isaiah 53, over the next four weeks, we'll learn four wonderful truths about this servant. And this servant being none other than Jesus Christ. Today we discover the nature of the kingdom that he came to establish. We're looking at the the servant's kingdom, one of perfect justice. And then next week we're going to look at the diversity of people that will make up the citizens of that kingdom. And then the third week we'll get a crash course in what he is like. The character of the servant. You know, we often reflect on on what Jesus has done for us. You know, his actions, his death, his burial, his resurrection that accomplished our salvation. But rarely do we get a chance to reflect on the in-depth and dynamic character behind that person. What made him tick to do what he did? And we'll look at that. And finally, on the last week, we will reflect on... Probably the most famous chapter in this whole book, Isaiah 53, which details the suffering, the death, the burial, and even the resurrection of Jesus. And so this, that was the task that the servant that had been given to accomplish. But today, this is our first week, we get to basically start with the end. You know, what, what is all of this for? What is is coming, skipping forward to the end of all things. What will life be like in this new heaven and new earth that Isaiah speaks of later in the book? What will be the kingdom that Jesus came to establish? What will it look like when it's fully consummated? This first song gives us a sneak peek. So starting in verse 1, what, what we see is Jesus's. Kingdom of justice is the Trinity's endgame. Take a look at verse 1. It says, this is God the Father talking. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. And so verse 1 basically is the gospel in miniature. It's it's God saying, Jesus is the answer. He's the one. At the end of time, it'll be His kingdom that rules. And if we if we examine what the word gospel is, it means good news. But it, it's a proclamation. It's a it's like when you think of a herald back in ancient times. It's someone bringing news of a new kingdom with a new ruler, and that's what. God is talking about right here. Listen up, something new. Gospel. There's a new kingdom that's going to be established. And so right out of the gate, Isaiah tells us that every person of the triune Godhead is involved in this establishing a kingdom of justice ruled by Jesus. And so firstly, how do we how do we know this is Jesus? It's a good question. The New Testament Constantly refers back to these songs when they seek to describe what Jesus did and who he was. So, two examples are in Matthew 3, when Jesus gets baptized. You know, he's baptized by John the Baptist. He goes down in the water. He comes up. And then it says, The Spirit descended like a dove upon him. And then the Father spoke up through the clouds and said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And basically quotes verse 1. And then later, when Jesus goes up the, the Mount of Transfiguration with Peter, James, and John, and he is transfigured before them, and they get to see a window into his true glory, his true identity, his clothes become white like no bleach could ever do, and then God the Father speaks up again. He says, Behold, this is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. And then he adds on, Listen to him. And then in Matthew 12, Jesus is going around preaching and healing, encountering opposition from the current religious leaders, and Matthew, the narrator, just hits pause, and he says, Just so you know, this is what was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah. And then he he quotes verbatim verses 1 through 4 of Isaiah 42. But notice how intimately involved the Father and the Spirit are in this effort. The Father reveals the servant here. The Father upholds the servant. The Father chooses the servant. The Father delights in the servant. And the Father places his Spirit upon the servant. This is a joint effort. The entirety of the Trinity is involved here. And then it turns to the Spirit. The Spirit is upon him. The Spirit empowers the servant. Earlier in Isaiah, Isaiah uh, is speaking of the same person, but he uses different lingo. In Isaiah chapter 11, he's talking about a branch that would stem from the stump of Jesse. A branch from the line of David. David will bear fruit. So, you know, you've, you've all been on a hike where you've, you've seen a stump, and, you know, it's a dead tree, but then you see a sort of new life coming out of it. You know, and my grandpa, he's a super nature um, enthusiast, and he would kind of show us those things, and he'd calls, call it a nursery tree. You know, there'd be a tree that was, that was down, and then off of it, there would be all of this new life. That would come from this death. And so Isaiah is speaking and he's saying, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. And then how does he describe him? He says, the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And so we see the father intimately involved and we see the spirit intimately involved. This servant is not a self-absorbed, self-sufficient, power-hungry ruler. His identity is in his belovedness by the Father and his dependence on the Spirit. That's part of who he is. And so the end goal of Father, Son, and Spirit is a kingdom of justice ruled by this servant. Let's talk about justice for a minute. When the Old Testament refers to justice, it's typically in a pair. It's righteousness and justice. You know, we see the word righteousness used in verse 6. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. And so these words, righteousness and justice, in Hebrew it's sadakah and mishpat. If you look those up in the, in the Old Testament, you see them used over and over and over again. And over again. You know, God uses these words when he speaks of Abraham. In Genesis 18, when he says, Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation. And all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. See, we see that promise. For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to what? Keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. So that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. And so we learn in the Old Testament that righteousness and justice is the way of God. Righteousness and justice is the way of Jesus. Now righteousness speaks of a vertical reality. It speaks of a right relationship vertically between people and God, between the creator and his creation. What does justice speak of? Justice speaks of right relationship horizontally with others. You know, when Jesus was asked, well, hey, what, in the Old Testament, what's the, what's the greatest commandment? What did he say? He said, well, the, the first commandment is this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. But the second commandment is like it. He says, love your neighbor as yourself. He joins those two, righteousness and justice vertical, and horizontal. Righteousness and justice are the byproducts of love for both God and our neighbors. And so, what Jesus has been commissioned by God and empowered by the Spirit to bring what is His kingdom? It's a new society. It's it's one of perfect righteousness. Yes. Which is Reconciliation with God. But it's also one of perfect justice. You know, we don't usually think of perfect justice when we think of heaven. You know, we think of kind of a sky fairy, ethereal vibe reality. No, that's, that's not what it is. You know, we can't get away from the fact that what heaven will be like is a society of perfect justice ruled by Jesus. And as Christians, you know, especially during our hot-button-issue cultural moment right now, you know, we cannot ignore the fact that a significant part of what it means to be in Jesus' kingdom is to embrace justice. We cannot ignore that. For that is what he came to bring. And that is what he's going to establish. Now, it doesn't mean we embrace one political party's definition of it or another political party's dismissiveness of it. Jesus is going to bring it his way, which is what we discover next. Verses 2 through 4, what we see there is Jesus' kingdom of justice is coming his way. Verse 2, it says, He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands wait for his law. And so, in these verses, we see and we get little hints of, of what's to come. You know, we talked about the songs that we're going to look at in the next few weeks. We get hints of those too. We get hints of his character here. We get hints of his future suffering even. And the third and the fourth songs go into more detail about those things. But notice the assurance here. The assurance of this kingdom of justice. The word justice here is mentioned three times in four verses. And each time, it it doesn't just, you know, list it. It it builds on the one before. It says, he will bring forth justice in verse 1. And then in verse 3, he will faithfully bring forth justice. And then lastly in verse 4, he will not give up until he establishes justice in the earth. Now, you may have heard of the upside-down kingdom. You know, when Jesus talks in the New Testament, he, in the Gospels, he says, you know, the first shall be last, and the last shall be first. Or the greatest of you shall be the least, and the least shall be the greatest. You know, this is the upside-down kingdom of Jesus. And we get a sneak peek in this song. When it says Jesus will establish justice in the earth, it means he will be the absolute ruler over all the earth. <laughs> that's not nothing. I mean, that, that's saying something. That, you know, just like we saw a few weeks ago in Philippians, that every knee will bow, it says, on heaven, on the earth, under the earth. Every tongue will confess Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The justice of Jesus is coming. But how is it going to come? How does he do it? He does it his way. And that's what we see in these verses. The power that Jesus wields is through humility. It's through suffering. Check it out. Verse 2. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice, or make it heard in the street. You know, Jesus wields power like no one ever has. He doesn't self-promote. He doesn't bully. He doesn't rail on people on social media. He is, to use a word we never use, meek. He's meek. He, He is gentle and humble. And that's how he treats people too. Look at verse uh, 3. A bruised reed he will not break. A faintly burning wick he will not quench. You know, you might be a bruised reed. He won't break you. You might be a faintly burning wick. Barely hanging on to your faith. He will not quench you. The people, the The governments, the the companies, anyone who wants to exert power over you doesn't treat you like Jesus does. He's meek. He's gentle. And he's also long-suffering. Look at verse 4. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth. You know, that word discouraged is bruised. Same word as, as what he will not break. Now, he's not going to break you if you're bruised, but he's also not going to be bruised. He's going to go through it. And what this speaks of, this, this threefold mention of justice is, this is going to take time and effort on his part. You know, Jesus could, he really could easily establish justice in the earth. Really quick. He could do it right now if it didn't mean ending sin, injustice, and death without ending us. You know, the project that God embarked on from the time of the first sin in the garden was how to bring justice back to the earth without having to destroy us. That's the That's the dilemma. It's not a problem for God to end injustice. But how to do that without having to end us? Because injustice is here. And so suffering was introduced to the world when they sinned. And suffering was going to be the only way to end sin without ending us. And so Jesus signed up. And he will not grow faint or be discouraged until that project is done. And in his suffering, he did not grow faint or discouraged. And so his kingdom now, post-resurrection, it has been established. It is a thing. We're in it. You know, if you count yourself a, a follower of Jesus, a disciple of Jesus, you are then a child of God in God's family. You are a part, a citizen of this kingdom. So it's been established, but it has not yet been consummated. We're in that, as theologians like to say, already but not yet phase. That's a tricky phase of the project. Why? Because the gospel of this kingdom, the, the heralding of this kingdom is still going out. Where to? It says right there in verse 4, the coastland. You know, that's an Old Testament term for the ends of the earth. This just means the gospel needs to go where it, where it needs to go before the end. And Peter says that the only reason God hasn't wrapped things up yet is because he is patient. You know, he, he wants as many people as possible to experience life as it was meant to be. Wanna, a society of perfect righteousness and justice. And so we've been brought into Jesus' kingdom. That's that's why we're here. And so now, what are we to do? Are, Are we to go into hiding? Are we to go into the mountains to await his return? No. Why? Because we are to not just spread this gospel through words But we are also to embody this gospel. We are to embody this kingdom. We are to give people a taste of this now. We are like ambassadors of the future. A life obedient to the future Lord of the earth is good. It's the the good life. Imagine if, you know, you guys like Costco, right? Especially on, well, weekends are busy, but they're the best samples. Ah, oh, it's kind of tough. But imagine if the sample people at Costco didn't have actual samples for you to, like, eat. They just had, like, the box out, and they're like, it's so good. Trust me. It's awesome. You should buy this. I don't have any, any samples for you, but it's amazing. It's amazing. You should do it. It's great. Buy it. It's eleven dollars You'd just be like, eh, Right? That would be lame. But that's what it would be like if all we did was was tell people about the goodness of Jesus. We also need to give them a sample of of the love of Jesus. Of a community that loves one another. That lays down their lives for one another. We want to be that sample. We want to provide that taste so that people can say in Psalm 34, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. How do we do that? Well, the next few verses help, help delineate what this means. Verses 5 through 9, what we find is Jesus' kingdom of justice defines justice. Look at verse 5. It says, Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you, servant, he's talking about, in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. And so this song, as you can see, a little bit of that is, is the context is a God-initiated court trial, where God is putting himself forward as and wanting them to compare him to the idols. It's Yahweh God versus the idols that Israel was trusting in. Who's better? And God's like, let me answer that for you. I created the heavens. I stretched them out. I spread out the earth. I give breath to people and spirit to those who walk on the earth. I'm better. You know, he created the heavens and the earth. He created people and life. He defines what righteousness and justice is. He does. And so if we're going to be able to provide a sample of this kingdom to those who are still on the outside of the kingdom, then we need to do it on God's terms. But notice first this continued theme of Love from God and dependence on God by the the servant. You know, God says, I have called you, and he's talking about the servant, he's talking about Jesus here. I will take you by the hand, it says, and keep you. This is the Father talking to the Son. And then he says, I will then provide you as a covenant for the people, for the nations. Isn't that amazing that that God calls Jesus in righteousness? He takes Jesus by the hand and keeps Him. And then He gives Him to us as a covenant. If Jesus needed to find His identity in being loved by the Father, chosen, kept, held by the Father, how much more do we? Jesus, He was the eternal Son of God. And yet, he embraced dependency. He embraced needing to be held and kept close. How much more do we need that? He needed to find his strength, his his resolve, his power, his energy from the Spirit. How much more do we, as mere humans, we cannot embody this gospel kingdom to a watching world on our own. You no, know, we, we don't do justice to look good before the world. You know, we don't signal our virtue to the world. We do justice because of who God is. And we are loved by this God. We are chosen, we are held, we are kept. We don't do justice with our own ideas or with the world's definition of justice. We do it with God's definition. Why? Because that's where we're headed. That's where the world is going. We're already part of this kingdom. And we're getting a head start on what we'll be doing for eternity, which is righteousness and justice. Worshiping God in right relationship with our Creator, and loving one another, loving our neighbors. And so I, I understand fully that the topic of doing justice is a tough one right now. But that is no excuse for us not to be about it. It's not. Because of this. And, and from start to finish, you know, Isaiah has some choice words for a people of God who don't pay attention to doing justice and merely go through the motions of spirituality. Listen to these tough words. Starting in Isaiah 1, he says this. Oh, that's Song of Solomon. That's not right. <laughs> He says, hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. And he's talking to Israel right now, so it's a little bit intense. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations, I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me, I'm weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice, correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. And when I say from start to finish, I say from start to finish. That's chapter 1. If we go all the way to chapter 58, God continues his critique. He says, Cry aloud. Do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgression, to the house of Jacob their sins. And then he says, They seek me daily and delight to know my ways as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. They say, Why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. God defines justice. And so when we encounter the suffering of our world today, we should not, our knee-jerk reaction shouldn't be to compare the situation to our favorite political party's platform. Compare it to God's definition of justice. That's what's going to last forever. Don't dismiss justice as a leftist issue. It's not. It's a God issue. People who do righteousness and justice is who God is making us to be. Now this takes wisdom. Absolutely. But this is God who is forming us. He will do it. He will help us. We, here in Capitol Hill, we can shine a confusing light to the world. As people who both love God desperately and put Him at the center of our community and of our lives, and yet love our neighbors passionately, We can and have to do both because it's only out of the love of God that we can rightly love our neighbors. Will we fit? Will we fit any political party mold? No, we won't. Will we get flack from both sides? If if we're doing it right, we will. Now, if you're not a Christian today, you know, if, if you're sort of someone who's curious about Christianity, about Jesus, about, about faith, about spirituality, I would just ask you, doesn't a kingdom ruled in this way sound appealing? A, a leader who, who didn't pursue power at all costs, but in humility and through suffering was vindicated and given all authority because he deserves it and can handle it. Not many people can handle power. Jesus can. This is who Jesus is. This is his God-ordained destiny. And he wants you to be part of it. None of the political platforms of today or a hundred years from now will be able to compare with the platform of Jesus. He created you. He loves you. He was willing to empty himself of everything to pursue and purchase salvation for you by his own suffering and death. He now invites you into the kingdom, into that family, to be a servant of the servant. One of the beautiful things about the book of Isaiah is in the last third Isaiah is split up into three-thirds. It's sort of the sovereign king, the saving king, and the sending king. The last third is about the servants of the servant who will go. And that's where we find how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. And that's what we can be, servants of the servant. We can be servants because he is a servant. We can be disciples because he was discipled. He submitted Himself to the Father. We can submit ourselves to Him. And so for those of us who are Christians, who I want to encourage you, don't be afraid of the word justice. Embrace it. Remember your identity as God's beloved and your power as Spirit-given. That Just as Jesus needed that, that core identity, Jesus needed to steal away to the mountains to pray. Was he healing up there? Was he doing miracles up there? No, he was just praying. He was receiving that identity as, you are my beloved son. With you I'm well pleased. We need that. And then we need the Spirit's power as we work for and await the full consummation of the kingdom of this servant spoken of 700 years before he came. Isn't it so cool to learn details about Jesus centuries and centuries before he even showed up in person? All right, let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for just the, the miraculous unity that exists between a prophetic work written in the 700s B.C. and a New Testament letter at Philippians that we just finished last week and how overlapping and unified they are in the story that they're telling. Different people, different genres of biblical literature, but all for proclaiming what's to come. A new kingdom ruled by a new and deserving ruler the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, the servant of God. We are in awe of that. We are excited by that. We're confused by it, intrigued by it, scared of it. We have so many things to learn about you, Jesus.